It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio. Flavored with a dash of humor. Welcome to intelligent, irreverent talk about plants and the planet they grow on. Your questions, comments, and participation are always welcome on Facebook and Instagram at The Mike Novak Show and at Mike Now on Twitter. Good planets hard to find. Temperate zones and tropic climes. And true currents and thriving seas. Wind blowing through breathing trees. Strong ozone and safe sunshine. Well, good planets are hard to find. Good planets are in the main. Brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts. Every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. Jet streams, perfect air. And here they are, Peggy Malecki and Mike Nova. Good planets are in the Right. There you go. Let's get the uh, let's get the shades on this morning. One more, <laughs> one more time. Okay, one, one more, more time. time. I'm, I'm going. I should have worn the paisley. I've got my Elton John glasses on. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I'm going incognito today, so I uh, I can go out in the streets after the show and not be mobbed by people saying, "Say it ain't so, Mike. Say it ain't so." I've been saying it all week. Uh, you know, it's been a really, really, really nice response. Oh, do I get to do that too? Do I put them up here? Yes, you do. Oh God, that just looks terrible. That's a bad. <laughs> that's with a bad. Head, with the, with with, the headset, you can't work. make it work with the headset. You know, it's like, uh, yeah, no, I, no, it's not bad. Uh, uh, if I could get Looks the hair like to make them out here, so <laughs> I know. Okay, <laughs> I can't make them work. Uh, yeah, I, I, the response has been uh, really, really good, folks. For those of you listening, and you're going to get sucker punched by this, um, uh, this is the final show uh, that we're doing for a while. And uh, uh, speaking of getting sucker punched, oh no, that wasn't the one I wanted to punch. I didn't have it up. Oh, see, I didn't load it. I didn't oh, even. Boy, I didn't even go. Can I load it? <laughs> Can I load it now? I will load it some point. Well, you know, if I don't uh, have that punch, uh, I can always do this one. Shut up, Wesley. There we go. All right. I'm going to play wait, them all. That was, all. that was only the single slap. Uh, yeah, I, I have a sing- I just did the single slap there. Okay. So uh, I'm going to play all of them today. Every, every, every single one of them is going to end up on the show this morning. Uh, so anyway, back to the story. Uh, Peggy and I are uh, are stepping back uh, for a little bit simply because it was necessary. Um, and, uh, you know, there's lots of reasons and people want to know the inside scoop. And, um, you know. The inside <laughs> scoop would be um, chocolate ice cream? Yep, exactly. Or uh, no, ch- actually fudge ripple. Do you know how hard it is to find fudge ripple anymore? That's Isn't my like Briars or one of the uh, Briars has stopped making it. I can't find it. Mm-hmm. I can't. I don't know if they stopped making it. I can't find it in the store. Um, okay, so everybody, if you want to give Mike a a 
going on hiatus with the show gift. Oh yeah. Like I need, you know, packages of fudge ripple showing up on my doorstep. I can't even get stuff in my freezer. Now I have this ancient refrigerator that's been here. You have to eat it right away. Um, yeah, yeah, that would work too. Um, not until after my, uh, yearly, uh, physical, uh, a couple of weeks. All right. Then I'll start, uh, on all of that. Cause, uh, okay. Uh, but and any- I have another question for one of our listeners, if she happens to be listening. Alexandra, you've got to tell us what you're baking during this show today. But she's not here. That was one and of the it- things. Um, oh, and, she- I, and, and I didn't do my morning dudes and dudettes. Uh, I just popped that on the on the restream and look at people already saying hi. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, Carrie, Carrie didn't know. And so what happened is I'm just stepping back and it's, and, um, it's you know, sometimes you just need a break. Sometimes you just need to uh, figure out what you're doing um, and do it better. Um, and and I'll be I'll really I'll be honest with you. <laughs> I I have to listen to this show more than anybody. Meaning that when we do it here, it goes up uh, as a, a as a video on YouTube. Um, I do podcasts of it in various forms: some long form, some short form. Um, and I have to listen to this thing over and over again. And sometimes I think that guy is awful. That guy, that guy doing the interviewing is just the worst interviewer I've ever heard in my life. And after a while, it just it wears on you. And so um, uh, I need to step back from that. And it's not because I'm the worst interviewer in the world. I'm not. But um, um, it's. Um, it's uh, it's just a time to do this, and and it doesn't mean we're going away forever. Um, I'm not sure what's going to happen. I, frankly, I, I have no plan. There's no plan A, no plan B. It's just uh, step away for a little bit and uh, and see what happens. Um, and but I have a feeling that I will get the itch uh, soon enough, and uh, something will happen. So, you know, and and uh, what I was dealing with right now was. Uh, So, like I said, I'm going to play them all. All right, but before we get to our guest, uh, today, and we've got and we've got John who's asking, how do we know when y'all will be back? Uh, because you need to, to keep, keep following. Yeah, yeah, well, first of all, sign up for the newsletter because uh, there, there some of those are going to come come out. Um, I might actually be doing a few things in print, um, and uh, so go to MikeNovak.net. And I got to tell you, the the newsletter had more people click onto it this last time we sent it out than ever that I've ever had. I had, and, and you know this, those of you who do constant contact um, know that if you get uh, a response of uh, 20%, you're going, wow, that's really good. Yeah. I had over 50%. I had more than half of the people on my list click on it. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and it's, and- you know, and all I can think of is, where were you guys when I was not tr- quitting, okay? Just <laughs> show up the rest of the but time. So, so, John, you can um, go to MikeNovak.net, follow updates there. Please sign up for the newsletter. Um, subscribe to our channel on YouTube, The Mike Novak Show. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Yeah, don't, well. don't lose track of YouTube because there's going to be st- – I know there's going to be stuff on there. Uh, not the long-form show that we've been doing, but there'll be stuff on YouTube. Please sign up for our newsletter. If you want to keep track of what's, what's going on, because we'll let you know. 
And, uh, and you know, at Facebook, <laughs> until I quit, until I get so disgusted with Mark Zuckerberg uh, that I just pulled the plug on it, we're still there. Uh, tw- Twitter. Oh, dear. Twitter. And the slice of wonderful life is going national. Says yeah, that's Scott. what Scott Jameson. <laughs> you know, Scott, you you get me a contract, and I'll I'll make it a, a Netflix special. Um, we could do a, it's a it's a, a slice of it's a wonderful life. It's a wonderful slice of it's a wonderful life. Be careful what you ask for, sir. I'm I I I've you know let's take it let's take it to the the big screen or the small screen. Um, so. Uh, thank you all for watching. That's the point of this was uh, thank you all for the wonderful responses. We're, I want to one response in particular. I'm going to read uh, at 10:30. Um, I, I was uh, just re- very moved by it, um, and a lot of some of them were personal. Uh, so I'm not going to uh, read those uh, on uh, on the stream here. Um, but uh, so many of them were so heartfelt and so kind, um, and. Uh, you see, you see, Michael, you've really had a wonderful life, um, and uh, and I and I started to feel that way that uh, maybe maybe I did uh, make a difference uh, a little bit. Maybe we did uh, get the word out about a bunch of things. And Peggy's going to continue to do that because she's still publishing product placement. Product placement. Here's the June issue of uh, Natural Awakening Chicago. And uh, we're going to talk about that at 1030 as well. What does coming up in June? So you uh, know what to look for. June? Wait, I'm working on July and August. Uh, you know, nobody cares. <laughs> hey, I got to tell you, you know, I was thinking about it. I heard a, a, a commercial yesterday, and some of our, our listeners who work in the industry will know this. Um, I heard a commercial about a garden center yesterday, and all I could think, you know, they're doing, where are our sales? You can get our annuals. They're already thinking Christmas. This is the way the business works, mm-hmm. the the garden business. Yeah, Grower the, Talks had poinsettias on the cover a month or two ago. You know what? Uh, you They get to June, they're done. They're like, you know, you, most of you are just starting to think, of, well, you know, maybe I should plant something. Uh, folks, they're already looking at Christmas. Uh, and it's weird. I think it's weird uh, myself, but I guess that's the way you got to do things uh, in, in the biz. So <laughs> Nice note from Scott just now, too. Uh, that is very nice. Thank you, Scott. He says, Thank thanks you, for making a positive difference in the green world for so many of us over the many years. I still have my Polaris Award. You're a perennial. You'll be back. That's true. They can't kill me. It's like he chopped me off at the ground. I'm going to send up a sprout. In fact, I'm going to send out runners, and there's going to be more of me. So uh, you better uh, – uh, Dan, and Dan Costa, okay, from Vern Goer's Greenhouse in Hinsdale. Give them a, a ding. Planting fall mums right now. There you go. That's that's the way the business works. They're done with spring. You know, have, I still have a tomato plant that's got to go on the ground. <laughs> I've got um, half a dozen that need to go on the ground. Although I I got about five in in the ground. Yeah, uh, a yeah, few I've days got them, but I Okay, and Bruce says his backyard in North Center is full of milkweed because of the two of us. Sorry about that. Uh, you know, if you've got the common did milkweed, you is, milkweed from his yard. I, I probably did. I just, you know, take one of those milkweed bombs and you just fling it over your shoulder into your neighbor's yard. All Iron right. Cup plan. So Off uh, we go. let's, uh, let's uh, tell folks that uh, today we're talking about uh, something we've never talked about on the show before. I'm very excited about it. Depaving uh, the world, uh, depaving our urban areas, our suburban areas, our, our, our ex-urban areas, you know, where the box stores are and they leave those parking lots. Um, 
man, let's get rid of them. This is what I say. And so uh, we're talking to uh, a couple of folks uh, f- uh, from Depave, the Depave movement. Um, so that's uh, coming right up immediately. Uh, at 10 o'clock, we're talking about a bird study um, that, was, uh, that was done in the Chicago area. Okay, um, and um, uh, it was done by the Bird Conservation Network. Uh, we're going to have Judy Pollack on, who, is, who founded the uh, Bird Conservation Network, uh, and she's with Chicago Audubon, and also uh, Bob Fisher, also with the Bird Conservation Network. And it's a, a study called Breeding Bird Trends in the Chicago Region, 1999 to 2020. So it was a 22-year study, and you'll say, yeah, so what? Uh, and I will say it's going to reveal things you didn't know about birds in our region and why our region is so important. And uh, I will tease this by saying that we do better in this area than downstate does in, in terms of a number of birds. And you would say, well, that's nutty because we're all concrete and steel up here. Um, but we still but it's connecting dots that you may see every day and not even think that they're dots. Uh, being connected. Exactly. And and it doesn't involve 10,000 sparrows in your backyard. All right. Like mine. Uh, and speaking of birds, one of the things we're doing today is uh, uh, Jen Kuroda from Sinisippi Audubon. And they're uh, some of the people who are involved in the Save Bell Bowl Prairie campaign. Uh, she sent me something the other week called uh, Bird Songs, Volume 1, Sounds of the Mississippi Flyway. And uh, if you're wondering what the heck that is, and I need my glasses because I can't, I can't read it from this far. Um, it's uh, what it is. It's it's a CD that was put together by a guy named Mickey Torpedo, um, and it features compositions inspired by bird songs mm-hmm. from species that uh, travel within the Mississippi Flyway. Now. The cool part of this, well, there's lots of cool parts because the music's really, really nice, haunting in some ways, fun in others. Um, It starts with a clip, uh, an audio recording of the birds that are represented. So I want to start one here just uh, before we get to our first guest uh, so you know what we're talking about. And this is the one that had the most clicks if you go there. Now, by the way, if you buy the CD, and we've got the link, and Peggy's going to send out the link. It's 50... Yeah, I just popped okay. it up there. Great. 10% of all CD sales will go to support the Sinisippi yeah. Audubon Society. That's, um, that's for actual CD. You can get a digital, but the actual CD. Yeah. So those for those of you who <laughs> threw away your CD players uh, because we've moved on with the technology. Uh, sorry you about are. that. Uh, yeah, pop, well, not every, you know, some of them still have cassette players in their cars. Just, just letting you know. Um, anyway, this is one, I won't play the whole thing. I'm just going to play a few seconds of this, but this is an example of how it works. This is the Baltimore Oriole, uh, and it is the kind of music, uh, you will find on the CD bird songs, volume one sounds of the Mississippi flyway.
there you go. You got about a, a minute of the Baltimore Oriole. As I said uh, uh, in my blog post, uh, some of it's really haunting. And uh, very nice job uh, by uh, Mickey Torpedo. And uh, and our thanks to Jen Kuroda from uh, Sinisippi uh, for... Uh, and, and Mickey's a Rockford area musician. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We've got a link to his site, too, if you want to see more of, of what he's doing. Um, so, all right. Uh, thanks. Let's get to, uh, our subject. I'm losing, rolling here. you know, this is what putting, trying to put the sunglasses on my head did to my hair. And there, I, there's nothing I'm going to be able to do of it for the rest, about it for the rest of the show. Let's get to our guests here. Um, and, uh, on the lower left, there's Mary Pat McGuire. She is uh, the director of the University of Illinois Water Lab, but she is uh, the person behind something called Depave Chicago. Good morning, Mary Pat. Good morning. Nice to see uh, you. Good morning. Good to see you. On the right, Katya Reyna, uh, who's a program director for Depave.org. Uh, they're, they're actually the original Depave uh, or Depave. Uh, and don't say Deprave. Uh, but depave. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, about a year ago, I think I talked about it on the show. I certainly mentioned it. Uh, and this is a story I've told a couple of times. I mentioned it um, uh, as we were doing the preview for uh, the show this week. Um, I had this idea, I had this great idea. Let's uh, unpave 50% of Chicago. Um, and I thought, wow, let's, let's, let's talk to some people, see if we can make this happen. Well, it turns out that <laughs> Oregon... <laughs> started this 15 years ago. And by the way, um, I found out about the DePave um, uh, movement uh, via Mac Austin, who is the senior amateur nature correspondent for the Mike Novak show with Peggy Malecki. She sent me an email. She said, have you heard of this? And I looked at it and I went, oh man, that's my idea. Uh, but that's okay because I contacted Mary Pat and she said, no, we, we really need to talk about this on your show. And I said, okay, let's do it. Um, so I, I, I'm not going to start with you, Mary Pat, because you're, you're late to the game here uh, <laughs> okay. uh, compared to, to Katja and the folks in Portland. You guys and Katja, you should understand, is um, an Oak Park uh, person, uh, Oak Park, Illinois, studied at UIC, got her uh, landscape uh, um, design uh, certificate there and then went off to uh, the wilds of Portland, Oregon. Um, so you have a connection to Chicago as well, but you've been the director of DePave in Portland now for three years, correct? Yes. And um, so tell me what made you want to be part of this organization? Um, so I uh, went to UIC and I studied urban planning and uh, shortly after that, I kind of moved around and did a few things and then ultimately decided I wanted to go back to school and study landscape architecture. And I was really drawn to Oregon. It's very beautiful and green and lush. And um, they have a really great landscape architecture program at U of O and Eugene. So I went there for a couple years and then I just kind of moved back to the biggest city which is portland which is not that big <laughs> no um, no that's where i ended up and um everything feels like a small town once you've lived in chicago i think <laughs> um, you know uh if i if I, I may interrupt for a second i 
I directed a play in Portland back in the early 90s, okay? And so I lived there for about three months. Um, and what was amazing, I can remember because one of the things I had to do was I found myself schlepping all over town for stuff, for props and costumes and stuff all over the city. And you could go from one end of Portland to the other in a half an hour. Mm -hmm. And I thought, yeah. I, I can't go four blocks in Chicago in half an hour. <laughs> um, it's it's so different. And I and at the time, now it might, may have changed since the early 90s. Obviously, 30 years is a long time. But at the time, I called it Portland was the best kept secret in America um, because of the greenness and the friendliness. It was a big, it was a larger city that felt like a small town city. Does it still have that feel? Yeah, I would say so. Um, you can definitely still get pretty much anywhere in 15 minutes, 10, 15 minutes. Um, it's very bike friendly. I bike a lot here. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I uh, was drawn to Depave because of their mission. And I really liked how they were working in public spaces. And I would get the opportunity to sort of see every aspect of a project um, and really do more like project management rather than just designing so i think it kind of just worked in my favor for my skills and um yeah i think since i've joined i've worked really hard with um the board to kind of evolve our mission and um yeah i'm just really proud of where we are now uh and uh, i will apologize you didn't study uh, uh landscape design at uic you did that afterward um, and, and, uh, but you did, and you've eventually got there and that, that's what connects you to Mary Pat McGuire because Mary Pat is a landscape architect, uh, who's been doing this for 20 years, uh, 10 of which was, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in the, uh, the public realm, I'm sorry, the private realm, um, as a business. Um, and so the two of you, what I, I guess, uh, connects what you're doing is, uh, not just the landscape uh, uh, aspect of it, although I, I do want to ask about that because what we're dealing with here is, you know, one of the things I want to ask you about is soil. Um, mm -hmm. and, and we'll get to that in, in a second. But Mary Pat, I think what drew you to it was water because you're fascinated by water in, in all its aspects. Yeah, you were saying about what drew me to Depave? Uh, go ahead. Uh, sure. Um, well, first, thanks for having us on because it's it's great to connect the pieces together here. You know, like why landscape architects and others are interested in depaving cities and retrofitting the ground plane. Um, and landscape architecture is a great field to do that. And I think that is something that unites Katja's perspective and mine. Is that we're thinking about how do we remake cities? Um, we're there's a lot of interest in greening cities, but we can't green cities unless we retrofit the ground. And we have here in Chicago uh, a lot of paving, which yeah. we'll talk about, I guess, in detail. And um, yeah, I did. I came out of practice, uh, professional practice. I worked on, although I was in private firms, I worked on public projects, public parks and um, public spaces and cities. And um, but I got really interested in doing more research around uh, developing new kinds of projects that we might work on as a profession and uh, also how teams might come around and conceive of new new types of work to do in to, to uh, climate adapt cities. And I was always interested in water. Um, I can say more about that, um, but I also just easily saw the connection between uh, redesigning hydrology back into cities by depaving and trying to unearth soils, rebuild soils, and try to rebuild urban ecology in cities neighborhood mm -hmm. by neighborhood. 
so that's where um, that's where some of the connection came in. And so I started thinking Depave Chicago about seven years ago. Um, kind of came up with that title. I didn't know there was really an active Depave movement at that time. And o- over the years, then started looking around to see what other people were doing, and found Depave in Portland. So um, so recently, I pitched to start a Depave Chicago program here, and that's that's what we're doing this year. Yeah, and. And it has become a movement uh, after starting in Portland. Uh, it's an international movement. Uh, there's a DePave Canada. Uh, I have a video from that. I have, also have a video, Katya, from your website, depave.org, if people want to go there and find out. Mm-hmm. And you can also go to depavechicago.org if you want to find more. Uh, and, you know, and it runs the gamut from driveways and sidewalks and and. Uh, hell strips or or parkways, whichever you want to call them, um, to <laughs> box store uh, parking. Yes, yeah. you're laughing about that, Mary Pat. Well, I have heard that <laughs> that term, but yeah, I mean, there, there, that's the thing country, that we call the parkway. Type, yeah. yeah, yeah. So we're thinking so typologically, I, like you're saying, parking lots to uh, like the drive or the parking lanes that are in streets don't need to be asphalt. Um, so nothing that you're, if you're just parking on a surface, you don't need to have mm-hmm. asphalt or concrete there. You can have more interlocking um, permanent pavers. But a lot of this is just removing the asphalt, you know, figuring out what that pavement reduction is in those large parking lots. That would make mm-hmm. a, a huge difference. So a, a question, um, clarification a little bit, and, and that did answer one of our, our listeners wanted to know if porous paving counted as depaving. But is is the depave movements, are they working with, uh, public policy and code, or is it more at a grassroots level? Um, in Portland, I would say it's more at a grassroots level. Um, if there were ever a policy that came up that heavily supported depaving, we would certainly be backing it up. Um, mm. We do do some policy advocacy um, whenever there's we have we almost always have some sort of bond or bill that is you know pushing for more funding towards building green spaces. Um, so we, we do that type of policy advocacy, but really our work tends to be more, um, on the ground. We're only two staff people, um, for the whole organization. So we really just focus on projects mostly. Is that, is that a hindrance to what you're doing? I mean, it seems to me, I would want, uh, municipalities to get involved in this. I know. And, 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 and one of the things I wrote on my blog post, uh, and folks can go to MikeNovak.net. Uh, Katja is is you're not you guys are not shy about your mission here and the idea mm-hmm. of community and social justice. Um, in fact, let me read from this: DePave empowers disenfranchised communities to overcome social and environmental injustices and adapt to climate change through urban regreening. DePave transforms overpaved places, creates resilient community green spaces, promotes workforce development and education, and advocates for policy change to undo manifestations of systemic racism. Uh, you guys don't shy away from that. And, and that's what's kind of interesting about your DePave movement, which might be different from other DePave movements across the uh, world, is that you've, you've focused on the social injustice part of this. Um, why is that? Um, I don't personally think you can talk about design at all without talking about racism and systemic racism and the injustices that were intentionally put, especially in urban areas uh, like Portland, like Chicago. Um, That was something that 
I would say I brought more heavily to the organization since I started three years ago. And, um, you know, it's no, it's no secret that when you look at maps and you look at heat maps, um, the areas that are historically redlined, that historically had uh, more black and brown communities are now the hottest and are the ones being more highly affected by climate change and will be the ones that see the uh, repercussions of climate change way faster before um, more privileged populations and more privileged areas in pretty much any city. Um, mm -hmm. So we felt that they're completely intertwined and we wanted to be very clear about our mission. And I will say that uh, we do work closely with the city. Um, we, you know, they help us with grant funding and they help us um, with permitting and things of, of that nature. And they have been really supportive of our work. Um, there's some really great staff members over at the city of Portland and in Metro, um, our local government. Um, but I think, you know, this work, in my opinion, is actually better done, not by the government. <laughs> um, I think if we could get it right, it could be done by the government. Um, but unfortunately, when things tend to become a government program, sometimes they lose their integrity and they use, they lose like the community connection aspect. I don't think it has no. to be that way, but I think currently, um, it's, it's just really hard. It's a lot of, um, intentional and person to person type of work and government doesn't always have that capacity or that way, that structure, um, to make those like one-on-one -on -one connections. Uh, uh, well put. And, um, uh, we're going to need to break here. Uh, but yeah. one of the things it looks like Mary Pat wanted to add something to that too. Yeah, really. I mean, Katja is hitting on so many important points that I know we can't go into each of them in depth, but these, mm -hmm. um, and Peggy, your original question about whether or not planning and policy advocacy or changes happen out of these programs is a really good question. Yeah. Um, Building code changes, for example. Yes. Yeah, so we know that across the country, there have been, there's been more progress in terms of developing new ordinances for around new development, but there's not great planning and policy around retrofitting existing conditions. Um, so if you have an existing parking lot, we need more incentives uh, and more policies around taking out that asphalt, reducing imperviousness in existing sites. So um, we do need we do need that to happen as a kind of instrument of change. Um, however, what Koch is getting at is absolutely vital: is that the disproportionate amount of pavement across cities, which we should get into maybe after the break, <laughs> the mm -hmm. Chicago circumstance, um, it's impacting our um, frontline communities. And so we ha even see uh, the, the um, amount of imperviousness that's around in our communities, particularly around our riverways, our working lands, our industrial lands is impacting frontline communities there. Who, and the, the result is of course, that you have really low tree canopy. So you can see the mm -hmm. connections and the correlations between those different factors. And um, anyway, we, I'd love to talk more about that after the break, specifically <laughs> we, here we, in Chicago. But the work, like yeah. Smith, reinforcement Patch is saying, is that communities getting involved. Yeah, commu exactly. Communities right getting involved. Why? What, what is that? What are you showing, Peggy? Today's Chicago Tribune. Chicago has planted trees at a higher rate in wealthier, whiter neighborhoods over the past decade. Tribune investigation finds. Surprise! The people. So people want answers to the problems of flooding and heat, and depaving is part of that. 
And so we're trying to put the education and the tools in the hands of communities uh, to make decisions around uh, the areas that are immediately affecting them. Yeah. And speaking of, uh, <laughs> it's you yeah. know, we don't have the four hours necessary for us to do this right, but we'll get it through. We'll touch on as much of this as we can. And, and of course, this answers the question, why the focus on social justice? Uh, as you can see, it's because it's important. All right, because it's it's very important. Uh, uh, Kathleen and I were talking the other day. Uh, we got to talking about we were driving uh, uh, downtown and got to talking about uh, urban renewal, which is the phrase from the '60s, urban renewal. Um, and um, James Baldwin um, uh, had uh, come across a phrase that was used a lot in black communities at that time: urban renewal is really Negro removal. Uh, and he popularized that idea, and it was basically this is what this is. We put the concrete and steel there and took out neighborhoods, um, and and we paved over the neighborhoods, and we, without regard uh, for the people there. In fact, because of who those people were, and there's still some of that going on, uh, and so that's why the idea that you guys are removing stuff, and I should say it's very low tech in a lot of places. That's kind of what you're doing, Katja, in, in Portland. Very low-tech, crowbars, pry bars, uh, jackhammers, people lifting and pulling and sliding, um, not the backhoes and the heavy machinery. And I guess your point is that's how we keep it tied to the community, I'm guessing. Um, uh, so one thing before we go, and, and I didn't want to miss this because this came in yesterday. Uh, on Facebook, when I was posting about our show today, uh, Kathy Johnson writes, A few years ago, a hospital in Rockford, Illinois, had a large flood of its basement that led to all sorts of issues. I advocated to the powers that be that they should tear up the back parking lot, which covered an area that had been and and still wanted to be a wetlands. In researching what could be done to mitigate future threats of flooding, I read about the Portland pavement effort and shared that information with people in the position to do something like that at the hospital. It fell on deaf ears. So disappointing Mm -hmm. that such simple, non-intrusive approaches to resolving environmental issues like this are largely discarded. So there you go. All right. Uh, that's uh, we we're off and running here, folks. Um, it's the Mike <laughs> Novak show with Peggy Malecki. We're going to take uh, a short break here. Uh, at the end of it, we're going to have another um, another song from Bird Songs Volume One: Sounds of the Mississippi Flyway. That'll be our intro into into the next segment. And uh, we're going to come back with the piping plover, or piping plover, if you prefer that pronunciation. And we'll be back after this. From spring seed and soil treatments to summer foliar feeding to fall stubble digesters, Blazing Star provides microbial tools from Tinyo Biologicals for natural and organic farmers. They have solutions for home gardeners, too. And Blazing Star also offers agroecological education and consulting, especially for permaculture work in Zones 4 and 5. Learn more about these great folks and great techniques at blazing-star.com. I was pretty well considered an outlier and nuts. And today, I'm, the nursery with the kids and everybody involved is still considered groundbreaking in the sense that we do it just different. 
Over the Possibility Place in 1978, by 1982, we were strictly into natives and have been ever since. Possibility Place Nursery grows more trees, shrubs, and perennials than I can count. Several hundred species, from large shade trees to very small perennial plants. There is a native plant for every place in your yard. From trees to shrubs to flowers and grasses, they flower just as pretty, they flower on time, they bring in butterflies, they make the yard more dynamic. And every time you do a planting, it is an opportunity to add a native or to integrate a native into your landscape and make it richer. You know, permits, by recycling, we save valuable landfill space and help clean up the environment. You know, what are you recycling here anyhow, Fozzie? Oh, bottles, mm -hmm. cans, paper, and snoo. Snoo? What snoo? Nothing. What snoo with you? Ah! To find out how you can help clean up the environment, write to Make a Difference, National Wildlife Federation, Washington, D.C., 20036. Even that snoo joke was recycled. Ah! Welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. And don't forget, uh, you can go to my uh, website, MikeNovak.net, and uh, find uh, the link to Sounds of the Mississippi Flyway. If you're watching the show on the stream, Peggy has posted the link. Um, <laughs> trying to confuse El Gato. It's not El Gato. It's La Gata, Casey Tomato, who just wrote. Um, at any rate... Uh, welcome back. We're talking about the Deep Have movement with Katya Reyna from Deep Have in Portland, Oregon, uh, mm -hmm. and Mary Pat McGuire from uh, the University of Illinois Water Lab. She's the director and uh, behind the Deep Have Chicago effort. Um, I was wondering, uh, Katya, I'd love to play um, a one of the uh, the videos that you guys put together because it, it really gives uh and uh, shows you very well what what's happening this is a small project it's not one of your larger project and and it's something we need to keep in mind and mary pat has alluded to it, it there can be small there can be large uh, yeah well especially for people living in the city you know in backyards and Right. Yeah. And this will give yeah, you an idea. But the, what I love about this video, uh, Katja, is that it, it shows the community at work. So let's take a, a quick look. I won't play the whole thing, but let's take a quick look at this. 
What's going on today is our first ever do-it-yourself backyard depaving workshop where some of our core volunteers, Josh and Taylor, agreed to use their driveway and part of their concrete pad in back as our big demonstration project of how anybody can depave their own driveway and extra concrete pads, pavements in their yard and create places for more plants, more water infiltration, more gardens. And so we're at it right here with about 30 community members who wanted to come out and learn how to do what we do on their own property. The goal of Depave is to assist, educate, and inspire in depaving projects. So we want to show people that it's possible to do depaving. We want to help with some of the projects, but mostly we want other people out in Portland and around the city, around the state, around the country, and even in other parts of the world to do their own depaving projects. So we're trying to provide the information and resources and idea that they can do it so that they can get out and do their own. Um, well, my, my favorite part of depaving um, is really the community building that's associated with it. So I love getting rid of asphalt uh, and concrete, of course, but my favorite thing is just having a group of strangers come together and then be able to learn this new skill together and then also create this space that they're going to be able to share. So today we're trying to teach people start to finish everything that they need to know in order to do their own depaving project at their own property. So we will be covering soil testing, we'll be covering how to operate a concrete saw, how to operate a jackhammer we have today, and how to uh, use pry bars and shovels to dig the stuff up once it's broken up. We're, we're also giving people a packet of information and talking through the steps to doing a depaving project from planning what you want the site to be, investigating whether you need permits from the city, drawing, drawing a site plan, budgeting for the total cost of the project, thinking about what you're going to do with the materials when they're taken out of where they are, thinking about what plants you're going to put on. Really what we want to provide is the information people need to know to go from absolute start to absolute finish of a successful project. Uh, well, the goal for, for these graduates Okay, is I, I thought that that, that shows it uh, um, in some detail there. And by the way, folks, you can go to depave.org and find all that information. You have... Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and they've got a... You guys have a YouTube channel that's got a whole lot more videos up too. Um, and and again, this just emphasizes the, uh, the as I said, low-tech nature. Now, it, I at first find it kind of surprising that you wouldn't uh, get it done quickly and just move right to the remediation of soil and plants. Uh, but you're trying to draw a community in here. And I, I'm, I apologize if we're repeating something, but I'm, uh, it, it's so fascinating to the idea that instead of bringing in the big machinery, let's get all the little people and have them work real hard. And by the way, I see that they're doing their stretches uh, because you don't want to hurt yourself uh, when you're uh, when you're first doing that. But that is an important part of it, isn't it, Katja? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, those videos um, are, you know, demonstrating how to do it yourself. We don't actually, as an organization, do private properties. Um, so we created those as a way to offer that to people because people are always asking, um, can you come and do my driveway? And unfortunately <laughs> we can't, um, but we wanted to yeah. share everything we knew um, with everybody so that everybody can take it upon themselves to, to, yeah, and to go ahead and pry it up. And with such a small area, a great like resource driveway, too. Yeah. you really want machinery anyway. Um, you'd want to just do it yourself. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and here's here's what it would look like if you're doing a, a slightly larger project. Um, yeah, so that's one of our projects um, that we did um, as an organization that's at Plaza 122 in East Portland. And um, that area that you're looking at is about a little over a thousand square feet. Um, and yeah, as you were mentioning, Mike, we do the, you know, pry bar, <laughs> the pry bar method because we feel like it's really empowering for people to actually rip up the asphalt themselves. It's incredibly satisfying. Um, and it's like sort of connecting people to place and um, just, I think it's important to remind people that you can do it yourself and that you like actually can make a difference like physically. I think it, it kind of connects body to, to, you know, these, um, these big ideas that we have. And so, yeah, people really love it. We always have music playing. People have a really good time. Um, and we actually go out there and pre-cut the asphalt into more manageable squares. We call them brownie, brownie cuts because um, they look like little squares and then um, folks can come up and, and pry them up. Is that how you plan to do this in Chicago, Mary Pat? Yeah, well, we're learning from the DPAVE uh, model in Portland. Uh, actually, DPAVE in Portland, Katja's organization, has trained many other programs around the country and in Canada, and we're, we're going through that training program this summer. Um, and so we really appreciate the opportunity to talk about that on your show and hopefully get the word out to others. Um, but yeah, we reached out. Actually, last year, I wrote a grant to the Walter Foundation, and they were really terrific. They awarded us a Resilient by Nature Catalytic Projects grant, which is allowing us to start up DPAVE Chicago here based on the Portland model to be very community engaged and develop basically to renature parking lots. Our focus is going to be on parking surfaces um, and parking lots are a great place to get people together and do remediative action, but through these kind of grassroots ways that Koch is describing. And um, yeah, we have workshops coming up this summer. Um, actually starting next week, we have workshop number one uh, on Thursday night, and maybe you'll uh, be able to share some information about the workshops for your viewers. And um, those are um, all free, and we actually actually have some stipends for community members to participate in the workshop series. So we have uh, workshop one, and then workshop two is July 21st, and then we have a live uh, workshop three is an in-person training where we put all of the things that we've learned through the webinars to, into action, kind of like what you just saw in those videos. And so, um, yeah, so we're launching this program to be very community engaged. We're, we're looking for a pilot project site to do this fall. Uh, that brings everybody together. Um, and we have many partners. Actually, we have a lot of people signed up for the webinars. We also have different organizations that are coming to, um, to this program already. Everybody from the Chicago uh, County Mount River Watershed Council, Friends of the Chicago River, Trust for Public Land, Open Lands, um, Alliance for the Great Lakes, Wetlands Initiative. We just have a number of, uh, Chicago Regional Trees Initiative is actually a huge supporter of this program, whose shared objectives for greening the city they understand that it needs to happen site by site and do, to be very community engaged in the ways that Kat was talking about. So we will use that model um, where we're looking at pavement reductions, cutting up the pavement, like that brown <laughs> the idea of the brownie pan, um, and then you know training people how to then lift out that that pavement. And, uh, and I, uh, I should mention that as has been shown in those videos. 
And then um, we have a lot of people interested in the what happens after you depave. It's not just like subtract the pavement, but it's really about coming back in and then. Right. That, that That's going to get to my next question here. But first, let me just say that the, the workshops are listed. If you go to depavechicago.org, mm-hmm. you just scroll down and you'll see upcoming workshops. Please sign Thank up you. below. And I would encourage yeah. everybody to do that. And uh, uh, Peggy, maybe you can post that. But it's yeah, just it's up there. Yeah, I just depave. posted it. Um, but you also mentioned some sponsors, and perhaps, Katja, I want to give you an opportunity to recognize uh, some of the people behind this. You must have some people that you're grateful to. Uh, sure. We have funders uh, through the city of Portland, um, Portland Clean Energy Fund. Uh, through Metro, we have the Nature and Neighborhoods Grant, East Multnomah Soil and Water Conservation District. Um, I would say those are our three biggest supporters. They really... Um, backed us up over the years. Uh, and and uh, on your site, Mary Pat, you mentioned uh, Resilient by Nature RxN grant and the Walder Foundation. Yeah, that, so they're a private foundation who, that in this um, in this grants program, this RBIN program, Resilient by Nature, they're funding a number of organizations and programs around the re- Chicago region. So DPA Chicago is really a regional program um, to do what they call nature bait based solutions to address a lot of these kind of urban urban issues that we're all working on. And so, um, yeah, we got that grant, but I also have to say that, um, you know, Water Lab, we are kind of a, the, the host organization or the managing organization for the DPAVE Chicago program. We're at the University of Illinois um, uh, in the Department of Landscape Architecture and the College of Fine and Flat Arts. And we have funding from our university as well to support the lab and to support this program through the Office of Research. Because we're a land-grant university, our mission is really to be out there and to be engaged in doing community-based work so that research and design, you know, um, design programs that we have are actually like, you know, impacting the state of Illinois and we're very focused on population areas like Chicago. So, right. um, so there's a lot of like momentum, a lot of history behind mm-hmm. the starting this program. And I wanna also make a plug for the workshops because Katya herself is one of two trainers in those workshops. So if anybody ah. wants that workshop, uh, yeah. And so Katya is joined by Ted Labby, who is um, kind of an older depaver, uh, old timer rather, um, in the depave movement in Portland and has been uh, involved with depave for almost since its beginning, I think. Um, so the two of them bring a range of expertise and they'll be working with us, not just in the workshops, and then they'll be here uh, for the DPAVE project in the fall, but they'll be consulting with us all next year to help these projects go well and to work with communities in a really effective way. Uh, now, since this show is nominally about growing things, uh, and you just alluded to it, Mary Pat, that it's not just about removing this stuff. It's what happens afterward. And so that leads me, because you guys are landscape architects, you know about soil. Soil is the important thing. That's where everything's going to grow. What happens when you remove this? What do you find underneath, and how hard is it to 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 restore make something? Grow there, yeah. Make <laughs> you know, Akacha. I want to start with you. What what has t- happened to this soil after decades of being smothered by concrete or asphalt and compressed? Hmm. Um. So actually, it, it's it's uh, not as wild as you might think. Um, it is very compacted and the soil that is under there. So it's uh, asphalt and then typically there's a gravel sublayer. So you have to remove both. And then right under that is the very sad compacted soil. 
Um, so we usually have that fluffed up so that it's sort of moving again, waking up again. And then we add uh, like a three-way blend uh, with compost and, you know, just healthy soil to add to it. But um, we plant things right away and um, usually they take off um, pretty easily. We haven't really had a situation where nothing can grow. Um, we, yeah, so we haven't really also really worked on sites that had um, damaged soil. Like we didn't, we haven't done like many brownfield sites or anything like that personally. Um, but I would imagine that if there were a site like that, there would be a little bit more cleanup. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Mary Pat, I will pursue this by asking what then changes in terms of uh, drainage of the area. I was looking at that 1,000 square foot uh, area that was done in the middle of that parking lot. Can that actually make a big difference in terms of water flow? Yeah, that can make a huge difference. And of course, as we're looking at pavement reduction, we'll be doing like looking at the site and analyzing water flow. Where is water draining? What is the, the drainage pattern? And then depaving so that we can capture that water. If stormwater yeah. management is a key you know, goal for that community, for that project site. Um, and so you can do one large like depave uh, subtraction like you see there in that image, but you can also um, intersperse or like distribute depave uh, sections throughout too to do capturing along the way, you know, sort mm-hmm. of spread out the project. Um, you can, of course, take out the whole parking lot if you want to, but if you still need functional surface for parking, you can leave that in. Um, but we've done a lot of studies at the University of Illinois. Actually, I've had great partnerships with the Illinois State Geological Survey and with Civil and Environmental Engineering Department um, to look at retrofitting and to look at what percentage of pavement needs to be reduced in order to get a certain sort of stormwater infiltration. So, um, yeah, I have lots of information I can share with others about that. But we never exceed like a one to five ratio. You want to do like a minimum 20% uh, pavement reduction. And you might increase that if you're in a kind of denser soil environment, if you have um, yeah, finer soils. But we also sit over a lot of sand in this area, which people don't understand, especially around the coastal area, about you know upwards to five miles inland. You can find pockets of sand because we are in a beach environment. We just paved over it. And so we have high infiltration in some areas. So we're going to find variable soils around the area and we can depave according to if, it, if stormwater infiltration is the goal. Um, but we can, yeah, we can, we can do a lot of different things. Um, it just depends on what that community is trying to achieve. And of course, if we're and trying to increase the canopy, then we'll be looking at soil and root volume and, and restoring those soils, but trying to get enough volume for those trees to grow to full maturity. So it's, no, there I- is a lot of technical you know, expertise that kind of can come into it. But some of it's just going to be like figuring out how do people want to use those places, you know, and trying to, to trying to design that deep paving around um, different kinds of programs and, and other kinds of public, you know, public use. So. Peggy? Yeah, and I saw a lot on your website um, focused on Stony Island, um, Lake Calumet area. Is that where some of the projects are going to be starting? Oh, we would love to do work there, of course. Um, we, are, we are kind of granted to do work in frontline, more in frontline communities. Um, and we, those are certainly areas where we have low tree canopy and we have great soils, um, in those areas for infiltration. Um, and actually MWRD is interested in this program and interested in supporting this program. So we're just starting to have conversations about how this can be, um, a project type that MWRD is is supporting and maybe bringing some of those like compost and biosolids to the site to try to restore the soils. 
Um, so yeah, certainly those areas. But when you look at the pavement map that we posted on dpavechicago.org, you can see where concentrations of pavement exist in the Chicago region, and it's mostly in commercial industrial areas. Our commercial, mm-hmm. our, all of our avenues have huge amounts of parking along them. So um, yeah. so yeah, so we're targeting those areas, both to be specific to the community, but also to start thinking much more um, kind of like at the district scale to think about where large areas of pavement need to be reduced. Yeah, I was just curious um, where, your, where, your pilot, where the pilot programs are going to at least start. Well, we, I mean, we're interested in working kind of all over the region. We've had a few okay. um, recommendations or like suggestions on pilot projects. So we're still um, assessing those sites um, because the pilot project needs to be a place where people can come together um, that is kind of central and that it has a lot of the components that we need to learn from in terms of, um, you know, re- reduction in, in, in parking. Mm-hmm. Per- and, if you're, and if you're looking at this, uh, this is the, the map of Chicago. Anywhere you see black, uh, that is a uh, paved over area of one kind or another. And that's a lot. Yeah. Uh, in the city yeah. of Chicago. You can find yeah. that at the Water Lab site, which we have linked to uh, my blog post. Thank you. Yeah, so about 30 to 50% of cities are paved. And here in Chicago, at least 20, 23% is just streets. Uh, and we've calculated that we have about 30% of the surfaces asphalt alone. And that pavement map is, it has higher percentages. Yeah, we, did, um, we, we didn't mention uh, at the top, and I love this statistic, that... Um, uh, we have a, a, an impervial, impermeable surface area in the United States uh, equivalent to the state of Ohio, basically. Yeah. <laughs> so at least if yeah, you didn't say New Jersey. Actually, in 2004, satellite images revealed that. And, the, and that concentration of pavement is in cities. Cities only occupy 2% mm-hmm. of the surface area of the country, but about 28% of the pavement is there. So, yeah, this is a huge opportunity for climate adaptation and, of course, environmental and climate justice, as Kachi was talking about earlier. Yeah. Um, it's part of the solution, depaving is. Well, yeah, and that it all it all leads to that. It, the climate change, if we if we can't allow our water to percolate, if we don't have trees and canopy um, uh, in our, our urban areas, uh, in Chicago we've been losing it, and now it's time to get it back. Um, uh, and, and what kind yeah. of uh, – you know, what one other thing, anybody who's a gardener who's gone to a fallow area and – and and dug into it and added compost can see the biology return and Katya, I'm I'm certain you've you've witnessed that in all the projects you've done in Portland. Yeah, definitely. Um, we were just over at a site that we depaved in 2019, and the lupin are taller than me. Um, the grasses <laughs> are taller than me, and it's just covered in bees. Ah. <laughs> There's tons and tons of bees. We love um, you so there. Yeah, it's pretty- we yeah we love the Pacific Northwest but you guys can grow lupin and we don't grow it so well here uh, uh, that's one of the <laughs> well things. grasses we uh, we grow a lot of grasses I know you guys can grow grasses uh huh so uh, it can <laughs> it, it can be done folks and and Katja the other thing we mentioned some of the places in, in the world uh, Canada I don't I didn't have time to show their video they had a video um, and um, Detroit my hometown yay yay Detroit has had got its own to pave uh france um and a bunch of cities in the u.s right katja um yeah there's definitely a lot of uh, u.s cities that are very interested um 
and a lot of them have, you know, successfully done a few DPAY projects out of their own nonprofits. So it's really exciting to see. Well, guess what? We're out of time. And that's <laughs> uh, the way it goes. Like I said, we could have done four hours on this. Maybe, maybe that's what we do. We just set up a, a, a webinar and then I just turn you guys loose and, and you talk about it. But thank you so much. And Katja, you had to get up frightfully early today. And uh, I really do appreciate it. Go take a nap. Uh, unless you're, uh, and because, unless you're out to, to go pry bar some, uh, concrete, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Um, and, and stretch everybody stretch before you do that. Okay. Don't, don't hurt yourself when you're doing this. Don't over, don't overdo it. <laughs> I'm trying I, you know, there's always going to be one guy who goes, ah, don't worry. I got this. I'll bet you run into that, uh, Katja from time oh, yeah. to time. I got this. Don't there's worry. A, there's a- there's a type of guy that we always look out for, and there's usually <laughs> one or two. Oh, <laughs> I, I, and I know exactly who that guy is. Uh, and guess what? I'm not that guy. So uh, I feel, oh, yeah, yeah, no, no. Can we have 30, 30 more people here? Would that would be really good if uh, we could do that? Mike, I think it would be great to get you out on our first pilot project this fall if you I, would be willing I'm to be, join us. I'm going to be there. Absolutely going to be there, and I will. I will. I will put on my uh, my aviator glasses, and um, <laughs> I will just uh, sort of uh, just control so everything. Katja, you can teach Mike in person. Absolutely, and I was just gonna. I was just gonna say our projects are really about teamwork too. So um, it's really you really can't pry up a piece by yourself. You actually do need at oh, least yeah. another person next to you. So. It's yeah, it's, it's really cool. You really shouldn't even be using a sledgehammer unless you know what you're doing. So, um, it's, yes. take care folks, if you're going to do this, but it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's really, um, inspiring to see what, what you, you folks are doing and I can't wait it's for it. To... <laughs> hey, all right. Oh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, 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 and Thank don't. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having us. We really appreciate it. <laughs> uh, 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 Thank Mary, you so much, Mary Pat. Great. We're going to follow you along with the with the rim shot. All right. Thank you guys both for being here. Go Thank to depave dot org uh, or to depavechicago dot org, and and you'll find more. You'll you'll find uh, all the other places uh, if if you need it for your community. Um, yeah. And if you're in the Chicago area, yeah, sign up, get involved in this because uh, we need to restore. We need we need to we need to get back to the garden, as they say. Uh, Mary Pat McGuire and uh, Katya Raina, thank you so much for being on the show with us this morning. Thank you, thank you so much. All right, uh, when we come back, we're talking birds and uh, the new study. You're going to like this, right. and and exactly, and we'll have. Uh, and are you going to do a? No impersonations, uh, other impersonations for us, Peggy, like a, a goat maybe before the end of the show. Yeah, we, we're coming up on a commercial break here. Yeah, I, but we could do a goat. We'll have plenty of time for a goat later. She does the best goat. Yeah. She won't do it for anybody. She won't do it for me. <laughs> uh, all right, we'll see. And we'll have another bird at the end of the, the Sandhill Crate coming up. It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. We'll be right back. best thing about my job is the excitement of uh, waking up every morning just wondering what the challenges are going to be that day. So how do you like my office? We lead with safety. It's the first thing that I think about when I wake up. It's the last thing I think about when I go to bed. 
we've got a number of employees in the office, myself included, who've been, been around for 10, 15 plus years. So people enjoy working for the company. And staff retention is a thing that we're very, very keen on. It's no secret that the world of arboriculture is a male-dominated industry, but there is a fearless group of women out there that are determined to change that, and I'm really proud to be one of those women. At my office, I feel like you could take just about anyone, put a crew together, and send them out to a job and have it be successful. And that has to do with trusting the people you work with, feeling safe around them, and knowing their strengths and weaknesses. One of the proudest moments working uh, with Barlet for me was being the first to do training in a Spanish class. Bartlett is all about promoting from within. We really want to focus on our people and make sure that they're trained, make sure that they understand their role and you slowly grow through your experience and then you improve and, and move on to different roles within the company. There's always new positions, even at a base level, myself included. I started off as a climber and have worked my way through to being local manager in the office. Bartlett has been really great about recognizing any kind of roadblocks for different genders, different races, people of different nationalities, and just kind of taking a bulldozer to all of those roadblocks. Every tree needs a champion. 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 Welcome to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio with just a soup-son of humor. Or is that a dash? Brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts. Every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. Here they are again, Peggy Malecki and Mike Novak. All I need is good food to eat and make me healthy, wealthy, wide awake. Lettuce, tomatoes, root, and bacon. What about those sweet potatoes? All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good tools to make me music, porches, lawn serene. Give me all that I can take. Give me stuff that I can break. All I need is good tools to make Welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with uh, Peggy Malecki. And as you can see, that is the Sandhill Crane song. 
based on, uh, I guess, Judy Pollack, uh, a kind of success story for our region, correct? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, so we're going to be talking about a study today. And in fact, the Sandhill Crane was the winner in our wetland category. It had had the highest increases of uh, uh, 7.3% a year. And, uh, you know, I think that's because the Sandhill Crane population has really established itself in Wisconsin, and it's starting to spill over down into Illinois. And our wetlands now, most of them have a pair of nesting Sandhill Cranes, whereas if you went back 15 years, you wouldn't see them at all. Wow. All right. We'll give a, a ding to that. didn't work out. There's a ding for the Sandhill Crane. Great. I'm, uh, I'm so glad to hear that. Uh, Judy Pollack is uh, the founder of the Bird Conservation Network, as you can see uh, below her. Uh, but she is uh, also the president of the Chicago Audubon Society. On the right there, you see Bob Fisher. Um, he's communications director for the Bird Conservation Network. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I buried the lead and skipped to the question of the Sandhill Cranes, but I didn't realize that they were the, the, the winner on that, but uh, you guys uh, are here today to talk about a study that was just released. In fact, uh, it just came out last Wednesday, the um, 22-year study of breeding birds from northeastern Illinois. It was called Breeding Bird Trends in the Chicago Region, 1999 to 2020, and uh, the Bird Conservation Network put it together. So I guess we need to start, Judy, by, uh, and I, I see you moved. You were on your back porch. What happened? How come you're not on the back porch? You know, I had connection problems back there. You, you, the first segment wasn't coming in too clearly. So I moved inside closer okay. to the router. Thank you. That's really <laughs> smart. I see, I love it when my, my guests are thinking uh, ahead of time and, and figuring things out. We really appreciate that. Um, by the way, Bob, uh, good morning to you, and thank you for being on the show. Well, same here. We really appreciate being on the show and talk about the uh, the trends analysis. It's uh, It's been a great project to uh, – um, by the way, I just would comment that this is not the end. Uh, the project itself is continuing, and uh, hopefully 22 years from now, uh, we'll all be sitting here on screen again talking about it. Uh, uh, about 44 years worth of data. It sounds good to me. All right, I'm yeah, I'm ready for it. Put it, on, put it on your calendar, Mike. Yeah, I, I, it's uh, it's it's penciled in. It's I put it on in crayon actually, and uh, we'll see how that works. Uh, but uh, the study uh, looked at 100 nesting species across grassland, shrubland, wetland, and woodland habitats. Um, and so, uh, Judy, tell us uh, a little bit. Uh, about that study, um, I, from what I know, uh, the Bird Conservation Network is all volunteers. So was this a, an all-volunteer effort? Uh, pretty much, yeah. We, we have um, volunteers that know their birds well, and we're always looking for more, um, that go out uh, in June and spend a five-minute period at a point recording all the birds that they see in here. And usually they've got, uh, you know, eight or ten points at a preserve. Um, so that's the basis of our study. And people, you know, just get out and do that year after year, twice in June. And also in other seasons, they get to know their preserves. Uh, but uh, having that consistent data from many times the same observer from the same point collected in the same way allows us 
to draw all kinds of interesting statistical conclusions. So the BCN is a um, coalition of pretty much all of the bird clubs in the Chicago area. So Cook County and then the surrounding counties that touch Cook County. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And and, and, uh, and you're the president of the Chicago Audubon Society, by the way. I don't know. No, I am. That. That's Eric Secker. Uh, Eric Secker, the president, oh, and Diane Wilderback, the vice president, really are really the people that made this um, survey happen. Uh, they did. And also, I would add uh, our former president, Sonny Cohen. Wait, did it? Uh, did, okay, I missed that. Did I get something wrong? Uh, your past president? Right, I'm not a long time ago, President. I was the first. Okay, we 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 yeah, right. we, we found that someplace, and uh, we promoted you. Again. <laughs> All right, uh, okay, but but given uh, that you have so many uh, organizations involved, uh, and uh, as you said, uh, twenty one organizations or thereabouts, um, and yeah. and that it's a lot of volunteer work. Um, how does this fit into the science because something uh, Peggy and I are going to talk about later in the the show is a study. And I think we uh, talked about this the other day when we were doing a preview, uh, doing the check of our tech here, Um, the Monarch study, there's a new Monarch study uh, that had some interesting results. And some scientists are looking askance at it and saying, well, it was volunteers and the data weren't collected in a way that we really uh, think is uh, is exactly what we want, and I mean, so how how do you work uh, towards getting the data scientifically? Right. So, luckily, in the world, there's a a lot of um, precedent for using volunteer data. In fact, eBird, which you may know of, you know, all, many mm-hmm. birders put their into eBird, and then all kinds of scientists are using that data for all, all kinds of things. So. There's a, a lot of knowledge about how to use uh, volunteer data. And, um, but also, we hired a statistician to do the actual study. So, you know, we, we raised money and hired a statistician. So we're very confident in the scientific aspect of it. But I just want to read you one quote. I just really love this quote from um, Chris Wood, who is at eBird, who says, the Bird Conservation Network has been a pioneer in using targeted surveys to better understand birds in a region and influence the way that areas are managed to ultimately increase the populations of species that are declining elsewhere. And so I think that kind of sums up um, what we've done. And, you know, it comes from eBird, which is a really very authoritative uh, and well-respected ornithologist in our world. Fantastic. Why, why, by the way, is this a 20... and I lost my microphone. Boy, wow, it just sort of disappeared. Yikes. Okay, sorry about that. Um, why, why say, hey, everything's under control. Don't worry. Everything is fine. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's just, Judy, you've been on the show before. This is kind of par for the course. I mean, next, uh, you know. It happened to us at the radio station. Okay, I just put this on and, 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 and we're good to go. All right. I remember walking into the studio and having that happen. So yeah, yeah that's true. That's true. At a radio station, we had that happen from time to time. Um, so, uh, what um, what do your volunteers do? How take us through? Uh, and maybe Bob, you want to uh, yeah. talk about this Bob was as well? To say something. Yeah, about how how the monitoring works. What are, what are uh, folks looking for, and how do you determine how the breeding birds are doing? 
Well, I've been a uh, uh, volunteer monitor as part of the program, so I can tell you the procedure is fairly simple. You have a series of points within a particular natural area. Typically around here, it's uh, uh, perhaps a, uh, a county forest preserve. You s stop at a specific location identified generally sort of within the, uh, I'll, I'll say roughly the center of the habitat area. And you, uh, you look and listen, and you primarily listen. So one of the key skills is uh, knowing the bird songs of the species that breed in our region so you can identify uh, what's there. I would say, in generally speaking, most of, the, most of the time you're hearing birds but not necessarily seeing them. You do this for a specified period of time. You do it repeatedly during the breeding season, uh, and uh, you end up with a database that says, uh, let's take that Baltimore Oriole. Uh, if you're uh, hearing Baltimore Orioles, you might hear one, you might hear two. You simply record the uh, uh, in uh, on your checklist that you, you heard and or saw two Baltimore Orioles on that visit. And that goes into uh, a much larger database. There's about, um, I think the, uh, Judy, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's somewhere near uh, 25,000 observations have been made uh, at uh, well over 200 different uh, points within the six-county area. And uh, that's why the data itself can be, uh, uh, analyzed statistically. Certainly there are some species we don't have enough observational data to make a conclusion on their population trends, but a good portion of that uh, hundreds or so species, you can, you can say with good uh, reliability whether they're increasing or decreasing or staying stable. Yeah, let me just add that there, it's almost uh, 30,000 uh, surveys that we have. Wow. Right. And yeah, from 2,500 points. So those points yep. are spread uh, across the region. And because of our wide coverage, we're confident in our trends. Um, yeah, and so the 20 years about that, we, we, only, um, we only work in natural areas. So, uh, you know, we couldn't tell you how the house sparrows are doing because we just what? We don't. Uh, what? No, I, yeah, can tell, I, I can tell you how the house sparrows are doing. I've got my own observations I, I have got data for for days okay about house sparrows <laughs> and by the way uh bob just so you know i understand how you go out and you listen to bird songs you go out there and you hold up your merlin app and that's how you know what bird is there right well for some people yeah for, oh, okay. for many of us who were around before merlin came along we uh we uh uh, learn to recognize the songs via experience and so forth. So the Merlin app is, is, uh, is a help, but uh, the key really is your own brain. Oh, yeah. I was being uh, ironic there. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it, for, for, for amateurs like me, it's like I'm, I'm out there and I go, oh, my goodness, that was a, you know, and I've got, I've got some of them here. Oh, the I could, house girl. Uh, yeah, no, I know the house sparrows. I can recognize that. You know, if I if I look for you know some of the ones uh, that uh, I I was uh, I did on um, 
uh, other trips. Uh, here's my sound recordings. Like the last time I went out, um, I had some things like I had a brown-headed cowbird, a European starling, well, we know the starlings, uh, a warbling vireo, a chimney swift, a red-winged blackbird. Yeah, you can get red-winged blackbirds all over the place. But also um, uh, an indigo bunting, um, you know? So Yeah, and I, I, I think some of the point is there's a lot of birds that, you know, like you said, we don't see them, but you hear them. And I, I, I've used the Merlin app in a forest preserve or something, and there's 25 birds in five minutes that you never see. Right. So, so as you're doing the citizen science studies and the the listening, definitely. Well, well, let me ask you a question about that because uh, you know, the, the people who do the bird counts and I know there are, People have different opinions about the, uh, the the people who are do the life count, you know, where you the number of birds you've seen in your life and that sort of thing. And and I know that's a in some ways is a little bit controversial. Um, but do you actually have to see the bird for it to count or do you have to hear it uh, in one of these studies? Uh, either one works. Uh, if, if you see it, obviously, and it's. Uh, uh, you get a good look at it. You're, you're, uh, you put it down. If you hear it, and uh, you mentioned warbling vireo, for example, uh, that song of that species is very, very characteristic. So you may never see the warbling vireo, but you hear it, and it sings repeatedly. So you have a high degree of confidence that that's what you're hearing. So you simply record that as a uh, as a bird that's present at the site. All right, and now let's look at some of the birds. Talk about the, the what the study produced, trends. the the trends of, of the birds. Um, and here is one. Why? Um, know, why these results are here? Yeah, um, this is uh, a, a bird that's near and dear to Judy's heart uh, because her Twitter handle happens to be uh, Bobblink, um, and um, this is a bird that is still in decline. Correct. Yes. So uh, every bird has a different story. And basically what our study did was it just gave the trends in the region. So then we sort of had to guess at what's going on. So anytime we're talking about why these trends, it's, you know, based on our own research and conversations. We talked to a lot of ornithologists before we released this report. Um, But, you know, essentially we didn't we didn't. We don't have any conclusions about why the bobolink is declining, but we can make some guesses. So, uh, bobolink is a grassland bird. It needs large, large grasslands uh, because it nests on the ground. It's got to hide its nest on the ground, and there's like a lot of predators in areas with trees. So, you know, a hundred acres is good. A thousand acres is uh, is even better. And um, this bird is slightly declining, which surprised us because there's been a lot of grassland restoration in the region and a lot of focus on grassland. Uh, grassland birds are, in some ways, um, they're, they're very important, very high priority birds for us to focus on. Uh, they're the fastest declining birds um, in the nation. And we've got a lot of grasslands here. Uh, out in the suburbs, there's really... I think in the city, the only place you can see some of them is the um, that's the old South Shore, uh, Southworks, uh, you know, the the mm-hmm. steel plant. Right. There are a couple of, there are a couple of um, 
new parks there that still have the grassland bird. But for the most part, we're talking about out in the suburbs, these big grasslands. So what are some of the things going on there? One is that a lot of the restorations are a certain age, and we're wondering if that has uh, something to do with it. Also, the grassland birds really respond to having um, uh, grasslands that are of different heights. And sometimes the way that restoration was done was to go in and put in big blue stem and Indian grass, which make just this tall monoculture, which is very forbidding to bobolinks and other grassland birds. So one thing that we've learned is that we have to um, li really eliminate those seeds from the seed mix and go in with some of the shorter grasses, the sedges, mm -hmm. and the forbs doing, to do the restoration. And that works much, much better for grassland birds. Uh, another, we, we actually presented these results to uh, some local land managers that are working on grasslands. And another idea that came up is that a lot of our grasslands now are shru shrubbing over with this Bradford pear, which you've probably talked ah, about on the show. Ah, yeah. Right. I know. Yeah. You, you got to be kidding me. You, so the, oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's another reason to not plant the Bartlett pear. Please rip right, out your right. Bradford pear tomorrow. Get the Bradford a, just pear. Just go, go, go out calorie there. Calorie pear. Calorie pear. Get them yeah. out of there. There's another thing for it. Yeah, but they are they are taking over grassland, and I mean oh it's a God. shrub that. So if you've got that coming up, then your grassland is not a grassland anymore. Uh, yeah, yeah, oh and you goodness. know, I, a, a final thing about bobolink is that um, that's one of the birds that actually uh, National Audubon did this big study of which birds are predicted to uh, be moving north out of Illinois because of climate change. And that is one of the birds where we're kind of near the south end of their range. Uh, mm. So climate change may be just pushing that out of our state. Yeah, I, I would add to that uh, that, the the key to what Judy is talking about there is that uh, uh, the the land managers uh, use the birds as as the if you will canaries in the coal mine approach, so that yeah. that indicates the uh, success or problems with the restoration practices and management practices that they use. So uh, part of the reason for this uh, study and this cooperation is to help the uh, the land managers uh, understand what's going on in, in both specific uh, uh, areas and in general across the landscape. So uh, the fundamental reason to gather the data is to help uh, learn more about what is effective for uh, uh, management and restoration and uh, and so that cooperation, and, and there is a very high level of cooperation between BCN and the uh, region's land managers. And and you wanted to do a, a shout out to the land managers. You kind of are right now, but they're a really important part of bird conservation, aren't they? Very much so. And the uh, regionally, we've done a, uh, the land managers across the region have done an excellent job of taking sites that had within their systems that had degraded uh, for various reasons, maybe by invasion by Bradford Pear or whatever, but they've uh, worked very hard to uh, re 
restore, uh, replenish, uh, reinvigorate, if you will, and make uh, the natural lands more natural, which then brings back the birds. And uh, so I think it's fair to say that some of the uh, uh, increases that we've seen in bird populations uh, uh, across the 22-year period are related to the fact of the high quality of the work that's being done by the land managers. Yeah. If I can read a quote from the the press release about this study um, from Eric Secker, the president of the the Bird Conservation Network, quote, people in Chicagoland tend to forget how unique it is that we have so many green spaces concentrated in the area, Eric says. We found that a lot of birds in Chicago are doing better than the rest of the state and elsewhere in the nation because we have so much land that's being actively managed and restored. Couldn't have said it better uh, myself. Yeah. And and one thing I will add that, that that's interesting, though, is that this doesn't account for private lands. And uh, as Doug Tallamy has mentioned on the show, part of the issue we have in, in America is, is how much land is owned privately. And those people are under no obligation to do anything right. <laughs> okay, I hate to put it that way. But uh, you hope that they're contributing to habitat increase. Uh, but you have no guarantee that they are because you're, you're dealing with public lands here. Um, is there any way to bring those people into, I don't know, into agreement with what you're trying to do? How, how, how does that work? Well, there are some very active programs. I'm sorry, Judy, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say that that in a way, this is like sort of a public land versus private land uh, story because in the Chicago area, the majority of our conservation lands are actually owned by the counties, which is very different, you know, from most other places. Mm-hmm. Of course, yeah, are the big actors. Um, but the counties have been working really hard, um, and I think they've been working with, uh, you know, local uh, communities to try to do this work. But um, so, so where the game here is really public lands but but I think Bob can also talk about some important public uh, private land uh, initiatives that are going on here well w- one of those is the uh, there's an oak ecosystem recovery program uh, that's going on that the BCN is active in and that is focused on both public and uh, and uh, private landowners throughout the region uh, to promote, um, you might say, oak regeneration. Oak woodlands uh, are uh, an extremely important ecosystem here in northeastern Illinois, and many private landowners who own fairly large chunks of, uh, of uh, let's say, oak woodland and oak savanna are actively working on restoration uh, through that oak ecosystem recovery team uh, effort. Uh, that's one very good well, example of private cooperation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And and before we let you go, because uh, we're getting to the end of this, I wanted to quickly go over some of the, a couple of the other birds uh, that are mentioned in the survey. This is the Henslow sparrow. Uh, and it is a bird that is uh, holding its own right now, apparently. Is that uh, right, Judy? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh that uh, we found a 3.4% per year increase in the Henslow sparrow population. And by the way, you can go to bcnbirds.org and you can 
look up any bird you're curious about. Um, you know, we've got the whole trends analysis up on the web there. Yeah, I, you know, but, I've got I've got that link up there on my blog post too. So folks, go to there. You'll you'll see, and and they can go down the whole list in the the trend, the margin of error, the number of points, the the frequency, um, and um, and the rating, whether it's good or moderate or poor. Some were surprising. Yeah, a lot. What, what a lot most surprised at uh, on the list. Yeah, but more than half of the species that are breed in the Chicago region. There's about a a hundred plus species that breed in the Chicago region, and more than half of them are either stable or expanding in population. And again, that goes back to the management and restoration being done by the uh, people who own and operate the natural lands. So uh, we are doing better uh, in terms of management uh, than uh, the rest of the state. And uh, we're also, uh, as a matter of general interest, uh, Partners in Flight views this program as one of the, uh, much as uh, Chris Wood from Cornell said, Partners in Flight has uh, pointed to the uh, this, this work and said that this is, something that other urban metro areas can do very effectively so that metro areas are not population sinks, but population sources for a lot of birds. And uh, that's not a thing that a lot of people think about. Yeah. And uh, uh, Judy, so we saw the Henslow Sparrow and uh, Peggy asked this, are any others that surprised you in terms of their numbers? Well, I, I would say like, I knew that the red-headed woodpecker was doing well, but I was just surprised at what a strong uh, showing it had, which is great because that's a bird that has been declining, declining, declining. It's sort of a booster child for declining birds. And ah. we actually turned those declines around. And Another, and that, another oak dependent. Right. And because exactly. there's so much restoration going on, uh, we've seen th- those birds really turn the declines around in our region. And of course, really- I don't have the the redheaded uh, woodpecker. <laughs> I've got the pileated or pileated woodpecker here, but that's also another one that's doing very well, isn't it? Well, that's a different story because they're they're maybe returning to the region. They're uh, uh, they were largely absent. They may be expanding their range back into the region. Uh, again, we don't always know the reasons for these changes, but we can speculate a little bit. And in this case, uh, this is a bird that was largely absent from the Chicago area when the study began, which is now, uh, I, don't, I would hesitate to say common, because they're never common. They're, uh, they're sort of the top-of-the-line woodpecker. But they are, they are much more readily found now in the Chicago region than they were 20 years ago. Wow, uh, and, and some of the, some of the people we consulted thought that it was because the, our forests are reaching a kind of a mature point where they're more attractive. It's it could be. I mean, it's hard to say. And and my one of the questions I was going to ask earlier is why twenty two year study? Why not twenty? Why not twenty five? Why not wait till thirty? I mean, what what made you decide to release the the data now? We did a. Uh, a release, um, what was that, Judy, 2013, I think, through 2013. 
And we just felt it was time. We had another eight or nine years worth of data, and we felt it was time to uh, uh, to uh, go public again with uh, with the analysis of the data. And uh, as as I say, I think uh, we the program is not ending; it's continuing. So hopefully, we will in fact sit sit with you at some point in time in the future and. The trends may be more reliable, and maybe we'll see some more good things happening. And the meanwhile, and again, the, uh, yeah, yeah, people exactly. co- will continue to do this. Um, that woman yep. is uh, searching for my career, uh, and also for uh, some birds. So, uh, yep. <laughs> but it's yeah. but it's great. There are so many people that. Uh, uh, want to be part of this? We pointed that out the other day when we were chatting, um, which is that uh, in terms of birding, the, the advantage you have is that so many people are birders. So many people want to get out and do. This. In terms of insect spotting, not as many. Although you know the monarch people uh, are a lot, but you know the June bug people, I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's 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 yeah. difficult. That's why we're really proud that we were able to take, you know, that popular interest in birding and turn it into something um, positive for conservation. Well, congratulations on the release. Uh, Yes, uh, Bob. I was just going to say that uh, many birders are, in fact, interested in insects and uh, Mm -hmm. uh, do spend time looking at them. So I'm not so sure there isn't an untapped reservoir there for uh, birders. the insect uh, people to uh, recruit some bird money. <laughs> All right. Well, I know, and I'm going to get hate mail from the insect people now. That's the way this works. <laughs> uh, well, thank you both for being on the show, Bob Fisher, Judy Pollack. Uh, congratulations on the study. And, you know, congratulations to us, um, the, and, and not me so much, but folks like you and the land managers and the, the people who have worked hard now for decades um, to restore uh, our, 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 our native areas um, and, and get rid of invasive species and encourage um, birds that have traditionally been in our area to, to come back uh, or to thrive. Um, and I think that the, the study in part reflects that. Uh, wouldn't you think, Judy? Oh, yeah, Absolutely. But also, because I know we're drawing to the end here, I I just really want to say to Mike and Peggy, I really want to thank and congratulate you on this show, you know, since it's the last one. And, like, I know that um, uh, I've been on a number of times, you know, and everyone knows that this show is a place where you can take your issue and get kind of a lively, thorough discussion uh, of your issue. And it's... um, it's just been such an institution, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy for you that you're going to be moving on, but sort of sorry for all of us. Uh, you know, I think your, your Rolodex has got to be just like a who's who of everybody in the conservation world here. And, you know, you just pick up on all these issues and do shows week after week, just with, you know, what's going on in the conservation world. So I, I just really want to really want to thank you and congratulate you. Yeah. Well, same, same here, Mike. Same here. It's uh, uh, you will be missed. We hope you're not going too long. Nah, I don't think so. Something will happen. I'm not sure exactly what. Uh, but thank you so much. That's uh, that's very, very kind. You know, and it's interesting. You talk about the Rolodex, and then I'm always stunned by 
the number of people I don't know. People say, oh, you must know so-and-so. I go, nope, don't know that person. Um, and uh, it's just that there are so many people in this area, even though it's, it's really a small world. So um, many people doing great work like you guys are. Yeah. yeah. And well, we, we, you know, there are 200 plus bird monitors out there, hopefully watching the show today, because it's really their work that made this study possible. And and before we go, the one question I have to ask Judy is, are they, you know, you were president of this and that, and you started this group. (laughs) Are they still going to stick you in a ditch for the Christmas bird count? Uh, You know, you you deserve a better place. Yes, I'm still going to be stuck in the Judy Pollock armpit. Yes, for the Christmas break. <laughs> this is a Judy, you don't get any respect. I don't. I don't. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to demand a better spot. Bob has a really good spot. Maybe I can knock him off this year. I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, go go for it, Judy. Go for it. Yeah. So. You know, I see I I would never do that because I'm sure they would put me in a septic field or something like that. So, I'm I don't know if I well, can do first- it. <laughs> the, the first Christmas count I ever counted on my job and my wife, my wife and I's job was to drive the uh, streets of Downers Grove. It was really exciting. Oh my goodness! <laughs> wow, that's worse than a ditch, isn't it, Judy? <laughs> I abandoned my armpit one year and went with Bob. I don't know if you remember that, Bob. That was the only time. But I felt I so do. guilty. That I, I went back. <laughs> I saw way better. I'll tell you. <laughs> uh, well, come come December, uh, uh, Judy will be in the armpit of uh, the bird count uh, once again. So uh, congratulations. Congra- I don't know. Congratulations? Hmm. Uh, maybe it's time to retire Somebody's from that. Somebody's got to be there. Yeah, I guess. Hey, listen, uh, thank you so much, Judy Pollack and, and Bob Fisher from the Bird Conservation Network. Um, great work, and uh, just keep on birding. We will. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Peggy. Thank you. Congratulations. Uh, All right. Well, uh, we're going to wrap this up. Uh, When we come back, we also have another uh, bird song. So, uh, and this one. Another odd clips I'm sure we'll be hearing. Yeah, there'll there'll be a few things. So stick around. We'll be right back. All right, so I wanted to talk about the Happy Leaf grow lights that we got from Happy Leaf LED. They're produced in the U.S. and they uh, are constructed really well. They hit the the red light range um, kind of spot on. And uh, yeah, for the price, construction, and the results, they're worth every penny of it. Uh, Right now we're using them for producing some microgreens here in the off season. And uh, as you can see, there's just a handful of lights that have a wide beam angle. And on the technical side, they just cover a lot of area um, with with least amount of equipment necessary. Um, for transplants, we uh, do our tomatoes, peppers, cucumbers, and we get them off to a great start early in the season. And um, have, we just love the results.
From spring seed and soil treatments to summer foliar feeding to fall stubble digesters, Blazing Star provides microbial tools from tiny biologicals for natural and organic farmers. They have solutions for home gardeners, too. And Blazing Star offers agroecological education and consulting, especially for permaculture work in Zones 4 and 5. Learn more about these great folks at blazing-star.com. The Arctic is warming almost three times faster than the rest of the planet. Changing the Arctic ecosystems forever. Causing destruction around the planet. Once Arctic ice melts, we can't get it back. We can't negotiate the melting point of ice. World leaders must take immediate action to keep 1.5 alive. As you can see, that is the song of, or, or you could see, can't see it now, that's the song of the Northern Harrier. Uh, again, uh, Mickey Torpedo, and you can find his link at uh, my blog post. Uh, go to MikeNovak.net. And... I just popped it in the, uh, in the stream, too, again. Yeah. Uh, uh, don't end the show with sad music? No, I'm not going to. I'm going to end the show with funky music, Casey. Um, this, this, just, just letting you know. So I, I would see, I'm, I, I ain't no sentimental slob, so that's not going to, in fact, in fact, Casey, I'm glad you're watching. Cause, uh, you might remember that, uh, last week, and Casey was on the show last week for yeah, Casey tomato. We had tomato mania five. five. Yes. Um, and Casey, uh, introduced me last week to this. Oh, oh, of course. I uh, Let's go back. I didn't realize. <laughs> Darn it. Let's try this again. He introduced me. See, I couldn't do a show without screwing up something. All right, here we go. Out of his secret garden somewhere in New Jersey comes your newest favorite superhero. It is I, Captain Vegetable, with my carrot and my celery. Eating crunchy vegetables is good for me. And they're good for you, so eat them too for teeth so strong your whole life long. Eat celery and carrots by the bunch. Three cheers for me, Captain Vegetable. Crunch, crunch, crunch. 
Thanks, Casey. Yeah, you've uh, now that's an earworm for everybody. Okay, so he sends me something else uh, this week and says, uh, "I just found this," and he was he was kicking himself uh, because he had just found. Now I've got to find it because I know it's uh, it's here someplace. Uh, what the? No, I no, I had to have loaded it. Because uh, uh, I know I know it's here someplace. Give me a second. Do, 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 do. I tell while you what. what yeah. Why don't you? Say, while you're looking for that, one of the things we were going to mention, um, since Bartlett has been one of our major sponsors, happy uh, happy 115th anniversary to Bartlett. Yeah. Experts. All right. Fantastic. Yeah, and they've they've been absolutely the best best sponsors. Uh, and, uh, I can't, uh, thank them enough for, for, uh, everything they've done for the show. Um, and you know, you know, I was talking to, uh, Scott Jamison the other day and, um, he said, uh, you know, I'm going to support whatever you do. So, um, I, I really appreciate that and glad that uh, he's planning to do that. In fact, what you should do right now though, is give us, um, the um, uh, the uh, the headlines for uh, Natural Awakening Chicago June because that's now out on the stands and people should know about that. And I'm looking at the mutant tree or the mutant plant in the background. Your Mangarelia is um, it's looking. In- oh yeah, it, it's 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 looking <laughs> good though. <laughs> a year ago, a year ago, I nearly killed it. All right, that was a deal. Yeah, I, I'm I, just saying how it's. How, how the screen is stitching the piece, Lily, and and your oh. together. <laughs> yeah, it kind of is. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Well, I found what I was looking for. Do you want to? You want to see this first? Uh, because it's let's because you don't want to yeah, do it. You, you don't want to do it. Uh, well, you, maybe you, you want to do it. Let's go. <laughs> you know, because this is Casey Tomato sent me the thing before, and now this is what he sent me uh, this week. Tomato, oh, oh, tomato, oh, tomato, oh, oh, tomato, 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 I love them a lot though, fresh picked off the vine like I just won the lotto, for salsa with nachos, I'll have the gazpacho, if flavors the game, then tomatoes, the motto, raw in a salad, the texture be popping, firm and acidic, a bruschetta topping, cook it up, elevate the lycopene, bringing healthy antioxidants to that thermal processing, soft soup, shakshuka be steaming, scrambled with eggs from China to Egypt, tomatoes are global watch the yellow flower bloom save up those seeds grow them heirloom and yes you can can your tomatoes preserve them for the winter make chili volcanoes mix it in the basil that's a companion plant when you grow them side by side test abandon their plants oh tomato oh oh tomato oh tomato oh oh tomato oh tomato oh oh tomato 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 Tomatoes are a berry, but they stay savory. Are they veggie or a fruit? Historical controversy. In 1893, tax laws put them on the veggie list, but we all know veggies don't exist. Or let's say veggies are vegetation that's edible. That's a tomato, a fruit so incredible. Ripe in many colors, the variety don't lag. They be yellow, orange, green, purple, white, and black. Thanks to veggie gods when you see them on the plate. Pop a tiny cherry or slice a giant beef steak. Romas for the nonas, they already know. When you fixin' up a sauce, gross on my Let me marry into this marinara flow. Mmm, 
spread it on the pizza dough. Oh, tomato, I love them all, I can't decide. I could eat them grilled or even sun-dried. Why'd you eat the leaves? They're toxic. Smelling like the fruit, make you wonder why you got sick. In the tropics, all year they grow mad free. Ain't about tomatoes, don't throw them at me. Oh, tomatoes, oh, oh, tomatoes, oh, tomatoes, oh, oh, tomatoes, 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 oh, tomatoes, yeah. I make a pretty good ketchup, too. <laughs> and, I wish and, I had that much time on my hands. <laughs> I know, really. Do you know how long it takes to put one of those things together? Holy smoke. Yeah. Uh, Casey, tomato, um, tomato. Uh, uh, thank you. I think uh, Casey, uh, th- thank thank you uh, for for that. Earworm. Uh, yeah, earworm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Blah 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 blah. Yes, blah 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 blah. All right. So, give us a, a quick uh, preview of uh, sure. the June issue. Well, I can say there will be tomato recipes in the July issue, but we're talking June. So. Ah, okay. June issue. Go to nachicago.com and you can read it all online. Please subscribe to the newsletter. Would love if you subscribe to it or pick up your own very personal copy from locations all across Lake Cook, McHenry, and DuPage counties, including City of Chicago. And we're focused on men's health in the June issue. Um, men's really? Health Month, uh, particularly mental health, um, new trends in treating trauma. And raising empathetic kids, we actually have a um, big article on. Looking for the exact title here: "Planet Friendly Pours: The Rise of Sustainable Wines and Spirits." So, taking a look at um, some adult beverages that are more sustainable, and the big trend in more sustainable vineyards and distilling processes, etc. And then I will point out Cheryl DeVore, who covers our Natural Chicago section every month, mm-hmm. is writing about native wild roses. Ah, yeah. Un- unlike the uh, invasive wild roses, multiflora. the yeah. multiflora that just take over entire natural areas. Yikes. Yeah. So if you want to learn more about our native wild roses, um, you can go to nhchicago.com and read this month's issue or pick up your copy and great photos by Cheryl and by Steve Bailey and by some others as well. All right. So get your, get your and copy we, folks. Yeah. We'll be talking about local food and our, the importance of our food system in July with the main article written by Bob Benenson. Ah, Mr. Local food forum himself. All right. Uh, and let's not forget about this, folks. If you live in Chicago, you want to enter the Chicago Excellence in Gardening Awards. We have you, you have until July first. You still got plenty of time uh, to get on board. Uh, the entries are rolling in right now, and um, it's free. It's open to the public. You got to live in Chicago, of course. Um, and we'll accept just about any kind of garden, and just let us come out and take a look at it, and we'll tell you whether we like it. Uh, we're going to, we're going to like it, whether you'll end up, you know, getting a sign, winning a sign because of it is, is another issue. It's just, you know, it's got to have some, uh, heft to it. Uh, but go to chicagogardeningawards.org. Please forward that information to your friends. If they live in Chicago, we have this great, uh, ceremony, uh, which we think is going to be in September. It kind of depends on where and when we get the uh, facility to do it. Uh, and you, you cannot believe how much fun it is to, to have all the gardeners 
come up and and get their uh, certificates and signs and pat each other on the back and say job well done. Um, so it is, uh, uh, and I see you're popping stuff up there, uh, for any Chicago.com. Don't forget to pop one up, uh, for Chicago gardening awards.org. I'm sure you're doing yep. that already. Yeah. Cause I can see get there. Yeah. So, uh, like I said, July 1st is the, uh, is the deadline for that. Uh, couple of stories. This one is very interesting. We were, we, I alluded to this earlier. Uh, it was in National Geographic, and the headline is Monarch Butterflies May Be Doing Better Than Thought, Controversial Study Suggests. And um, it's um, uh, it starts with this paragraph, after sifting through 25 years' worth of data, uh, a t- team of scientists have come to a rather surprising conclusion the monarch butterfly population seems to be increasing. Um, if true, the findings could rewrite the charismatic... The eastern population. What? The eastern. Well, y- yeah. There's, the migrating. Well, the but migrating. The, west, the western, you know, is as well. Uh, if you look at the last year, you know, it was almost gone last year and it's bounced back. Uh, some people think it because they overwintered in a different place. Um. And uh, to be clear, the monarch butterfly species overall is is still uh, thriving, inhabiting a wide range that includes such diverse places as North Africa and Southeast Asia. But of course, we're talking about the, as you said, the eastern monarch population in North America, which uh, does the migration. So let's get to the, to the heart of this. Uh, there was a study published. In the global, uh, the journal Global Change Biology. Um, let's see. Um, when senior author Andy Davis, animal ecologist at the University of Georgia, and his co-authors scoured data collected during the North American Butterfly Association's annual butterfly counts, they found that while the population has fallen in some places, it has also increased in others. And looking at those overall numbers, scientists estimate that the gains compensate for the losses. Now, mm-hmm. as I stated at the beginning, this information is controversial because um, yeah. so data collection. Right. The, the, who who is doing it? Uh, it says each July, the Butterfly Association, which is a nonprofit based in New Jersey, gathers thousands of volunteers to look for monarchs in a 15-mile diameter. They each go to a 15-mile diameter circle uh, methodology that mirrors the Audubon Society's Christmas bird counts where they put Judy Pollock in the armpit of Chicago. They collect data from more than 450 sites across U.S. and Canada, and it's a snapshot of monarch numbers for scientific research. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, this uh, uh, Kathleen uh, Prudy, uh, a wildlife biologist at the University of Arizona who was not involved in the study, says that a traditional scientific survey would break a site up into a grid and make sure each selection of that grid was sampled equally. Uh, she's one of the people who she says... Uh, the paper represents the data, what data we have, and I think it analyzes it well, says uh, Prudic. I'm sorry, that's her last name. But there's always uncertainty in using the citizen science 
data to draw conclusions about such a complex and wide-ranging species. Uh, Emma Pelton, senior conservation biologist with the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation, expressed similar concerns. Um, we work with a ton of community scientists, and this is another example of the really cool analyses we can do when people go out and look for insects, says Pelton. However, you have to talk about the limitations. Namely, she says, surveys carry a degree of bias because they are conducted by people who typically only go out one day a year in the peak of summer to sites that are known to be frequented by lots of butterflies. Furthermore, they are not randomized in space or time nor representative of the landscape. So, are monarch butterflies... And then the end of that article, which I don't have in front of me, concludes talking about there being... um, Suspicious isn't the word. Um, they're commenting on how by saying the numbers are lower, it it triggers contributions and stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, um, um, it says Davis, uh, one of the people quoted, it says it's hard for people to change their perception that monarchs are in trouble in part because it's a, quote, useful myth for generating donations to nonprofits. Um, that's a bit cynical. Like, don't you? Yeah. yeah. The study authors assert the data is solid and speaks for itself. So we have now another contra. But, but you know, we should mention on this show, uh, Doug Taron from uh, Peggy Notabart has been on the Nature show. Many, Na- Nature Museum. Yeah. What else is Peggy Notabart? Uh, well, person. for people who don't live in Chicago, they uh, might not know. Oh, they all know now. Uh, and besides, my last show, I don't care. Uh, it's uh, He says that he's always interested in the summer counts. He, mm-hmm. he says, yeah, we count the butterflies in the winter, but let's look at what happens in the summer. Up yeah. in the- let's, look at, let's look across the five generations of butterflies, especially the two or three here before yeah. they head south again. Yeah, absolutely. So I I thought that was fascinating. Um, And so the the controversy will continue, folks. All right. To be continued. To be continued. And I was going to got one other bird thing I I sent you yesterday, too, speaking of birds. Okay. Um, And this is from Chicago Audubon on their blog from June 7th. Uh, many of you have inquired, and I'm sorry, I'm reading sideways because I'm on the big monitor here. How Part do you do Chicago that? Audubon, regarding the concern over the 2022 avian flu issue, oh, where right. IDNR, Illinois Department of Natural Resources, had recommended that um, due to avian flu, um, that people not use bird feeders and bird baths through May 31st. And on June 1st, IDNR says, go ahead and use backyard feeders and bird baths because since migration has pretty much ended for the year, spring migration, you know, Mm -hmm. the concern was all the songbirds coming through. Um, But it still may occur in resident waterfowl. So people should avoid feeding ducks and geese, even under normal conditions, feeding waterfowl can lead to nuisance problems and consequently increase rates of disease transmission in wild bird populations. All right. So now we can put our bird feeders back up. Yep. So cool. Uh, now I can. Bruce I have. Wants to know. Go ahead. I, I, well, I just want ten thousand more sparrows in my yard. That's all I was going to say. There you go. 
And a what couple of grackles cleaning up the feeders. Yeah, a couple of grackles. And I tell you, when the grackles get there, man, the, the, the sewage just flies. They're, they're so big. They just, and then all the sparrows are on the ground going, hey, more, 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 because it's all dropping down. To, yeah, and, and then the chipmunks show up, or in your the, case, the rats show the up. The rats. The rats show up. Oh, <laughs> I saw a big one the other day. I went, oh, get out of my, it was huge. It was, it was the size of a moose. It was in my yard. Oh, can't wait. Oh, but I've got some in the ground. I've got tomatoes and the kale is rocking. The, the baby chard is rocking. Uh, the, the onion. And the the kale is rocking. Is it singing that tomato song? Oh, oh yeah. Uh, no, I'm not going to do the tomato. Uh, and we were going to do this. We don't have Rick DeMaio, but well, uh, next week is going to be hot. Okay. That's all. Yeah. That's a six. Ten, six to ten days. Yeah, I'll put the trivia up. Uh, and then the the uh, the. Uh, oop, that is the six. Oh. I thought I did the other one. Okay, six to it doesn't 10. matter. I got the trivia headline right here when when the camera. All right, back. hold on. Let me get the camera back here. And the Tribune says, "Why are you still getting the Tribune anyway? I mean, it's a hedge fund paper now. Come on. Um, there you go. So, heat. Feeling says heat, humidity, ramp up after cool sun. Apparently Tuesday and Wednesday are going to be absolutely nasty. So be 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 careful out there, folks. Okay, uh, just uh, giving you a warning. All right, that's all we got. So all uh, great comments have been have been feeding in, have been flying in. Thank you, everybody, for all of the wonderful comments you've been posting. Yeah, they've been really terrific <laughs> comments. Um, really uh, appreciate. Um, all the support. Uh, it ain't the end. Um, something will happen in the future. I just uh, need a, a little bit of a break uh, right now. I'm not sure where this goes from here. Um, just just keep making all those good comments and going to all the big radio stations saying Mike needs to be back. So you need you need to have him on and you need to pay him Boku bucks just to do this because there's nobody doing anything like this out there. Help us get funding for for a podcast. Well, you know, maybe I just go uh, not for profit and then just like go uh, apply for the MacArthur Genius Grant. Um, I think that maybe maybe that's next. (laughs) (laughs) Because they skip me every year. I don't know. I I always I think they've lost my email address. I frankly think think that's no no. It's going to your it's going to your old uh, what was your old oh my Ameritech account. That's what's. Oh, no, they've been sending it to the wrong account. I need to, to see, you know, and there's that whole uh, uh, Gmail AOL account. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I never had an AOL account, I had, but I did have the Ameritech account. So, uh, all right. So, 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 so knowing how you like gnomes and stuff, you oh, haven't no. seen this one in a while. This is, this is the, the, the go green or go home gnome. What, what the, what is on the bottom there? <laughs> Oh my goodness! Yes, that should happen to all gnomes. What are you doing with that? You haven't seen this since a very early show. I don't. I don't even remember it. I so it, I brought it to, the, to Pirate Radio once. Arr. Oh, we get to say Arr. that too. Arr. Pirate Radio. Arr. This is Radio Armageddon. Arr. All right. Uh, so I want to thank everybody who's watched the show o- over the years. I'm not going to get all uh, drippy and syrupy about this. I'm just going to say thanks. Um, and uh, stick around and, and sign up for the, the newsletter, and um, we'll be out there. We'll be doing something. Um, and now I want everybody, um, and, and, and as I promised, I'm not going to go out with uh, uh, something that is uh, too crazy and uh, dippy. 
Uh, I just, I, I, I can't do that. Um, let's start with this. I'll start it low because uh, it's the American bittern. Let's uh, start that. Hold on. We're at, no, it's supposed to start. Come on, you. All right. Uh, Carrie says this show was rated R. Wait. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You can hear it's an odd little call. Isn't that odd? Yeah. Yeah. And I can fade this up, I think, without ruining it. Yep, it's still playing. Good. So let's thank our guests who were on uh, the show today. Uh, obviously, we want to thank, uh, and I've got the wrong one up here. Come on, here it is. There we go. Uh, Mary Pat McGuire uh, from University of Illinois uh, Water Lab. Katja Rania from Deep Pave out in Portland, Oregon. Judy Pollock from the Bird Conservation Network. My apologies for giving you uh, a promotion. Um, it was on, it's still on your stuff. You got to fix it. Bob Fisher. From Bird Conservation Network, um, Jen Corota, who sent me the information about this music, Toledo. Uh, Kathleen, who is everything to me, um, I love you, Kathleen, and uh, she's uh, also gives me hot coffee during the show, <laughs> which is the most important thing of all. Yeah, there. Thank you to to Rick DeMaio. Rick DeMaio, he was not here, but for everything and all of our guests we've had uh, for a long time. And uh, you, to you guys watching, you guys are the best and we, we appreciate the support. So uh, until next time, I want everybody to gather and say it together with Peggy. Uh, you are everybody ready? Because I know people do this sometimes. Oh, and I didn't, I didn't read. Oh my goodness. I go to Facebook and oh. see. I didn't read the poem. Well, you could put this on hold. Read it quickly. And... Hold on. I am interrupting on, this because I have to do this because it would be an insult to uh, to Alexandra. She wrote the most amazing poem. And, uh, and you I can read it... it on Facebook. It is up there, too. It is on, on Facebook. So I stopped this so I can read this. This is uh, from Alexandra Samios. Uh, and it's titled on learning that my Sunday gardening show is ending. And it goes something like this. Sunday mornings have a rhythm on a day, both free and planned free because you can plan to do whatever you want. The day is yours to honor God, to sleep till noon, to dig the dirt, to bake cinnamon rolls that only you will eat. That's because you don't send them to us. While listening to the radio, yours to spend or yours to save. Wrist deep in bread dough on Sunday mornings, I listen to Mike Novak talk about the world. For more than a decade, I've listened to Mike Novak talk about the world. Don't worry if you don't know who Mike Novak is. He talks about the world. About remnant prairie and community gardens and bees 
and where the souls of the ancestors still exist in the modern world, about how to cut a tree branch, or which tomatoes grow best in my own backyard. Mike Novak taught me that watching the weather report is a political act. While I baked and teased in the comments about apple quick bread and brioche loaves, and I wonder what will happen to Sunday morning, not to mention the apple quick bread, without Mike Novak talking about the world. Thank you. That was very kind. Let's get back to our music. All right, everybody, you ready? I'm going to say it. I start it. You finish it with Peggy. Go green or... Go home. 